Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series, Lifestyle of the Gospel, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 14, verses 5 to 12, with a message entitled, Keeping the Sabbath. It has been a few years ago now, but way back when, the movie Chariots of Fire was one of those Hollywood blockbusters. And Christians loved that movie, although for the life of me, I wasn't quite sure why. The movie was about Eric Liddell, a true-life hero, who in the Olympic Games of 1924 won the gold medal for the 400-meter run. What that movie didn't show was that his run was a world record run and his record wasn't bested for 12 years. But that was really not the drama. The drama came about because Liddell's fastest event, the reason he had gone to the Olympics in the first place, was because he was the fastest man in the world in the 100 meters. Even though the movie left you guessing whether he or Harold Abrahams would have won that race had Liddell and Abrahams competed directly with one another, in truth, Abrahams wasn't close to the athlete that Liddell was. But here's the drama. Unbeknown to Liddell, the 100 meters had been scheduled to be run on a Sunday. And as a Christian man of his era, he did what other Christian men would also have done. He resolutely refused to run on the Lord's day. God had determined that Sunday was a day of rest, and for him to run on Sunday would be to violate the command of God. What made the movie even more dramatic is that none other than the Prince of Wales had been called to convince Liddell of his duty to his country. But Liddell remained unmoved. He would not violate the law of God if that meant to run on Sunday. As I've said, this movie, when it came out, was very popular among a great many evangelical Christians, and I, for my part, didn't understand why. I mean, after all, I don't know any Christian today who would have batted even an eye the thought of winning the gold medal on a Sunday. I mean, after all, that kind of stuff, as is thought of today, is either legalism or it's a faulty understanding of our response to the fourth commandment, the command to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Indeed, the text we're studying today seems to comport well with the modern understanding of this matter. I'm reading Romans chapter 14, 5 to 12. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You know, at first reading, that text seems to say... Whether you view the Lord's Day as special or whether you don't, it's a matter of private conscience. That is, it's up to you. So in the case of Liddell, 
I suppose his refusal to run on Sunday, it was up to him. He's merely exercising his conscience, at least so this argument goes. But this refusal to run was hardly commanded to him by God. Indeed, I would say you'd be hard-pressed to find a modern Christian who didn't see things just like that. Now, it needs to be said at the outset that Romans 14, 5 to 12 is a part of a wider teaching. Indeed, the entire chapter is taken up in the discussion of two issues. The first is the matter of kosher foods, and the second is the matter of Sabbath-keeping. The context of this passage has to do with a very real problem that needed to be addressed in the early church. The Christian church in Rome was, in its day, very similar to a great many other Christian churches. They were made up of a membership of Jews and Gentiles. For the Jews, the matter of kosher and the matter of Sabbath separated them from the wider Gentile world. And and for the Gentiles who hadn't been raised with these things, well, this was never an issue. But put those two groups in the same church and it becomes an issue. So Paul, in the first four verses of this chapter, calls the church not to quarrel over this issue. In verse 4, he asks, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? In essence, he allows the matter of kosher foods to become a matter of the conscience of the individual. Wherever you stand on this issue, the apostle seems to say, make sure you treat those who disagree with dignity, welcoming them as Christ has welcomed them. And by the way, this says a lot about how Christians today should deal with matters that are matters of individual conscience. So much can be learned from this. Now, having said that, a great many people read Romans 14, 5 to 12 in exactly that way, through that frame of reference. But as we're going to see, this matter of Sabbath keeping is just a bit more complicated. So in order to understand, let's go back to verse 5 where we started our discussion. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, as I've said, to many of us, this verse refers to Sabbath. And just like kosher foods, which the gospel has made unnecessary, so also is the Sabbath now unnecessary. But are we right in that? Let's think about that for a moment. Unlike foods, which are clearly related to the national life of Israel only, the Sabbath is a part of the Ten Commandments, God's charter for all of humanity. So, for instance, how many of us today would now argue that we only have nine commands? Is that really the case? Are one of the ten to be dropped? And, of course, if one goes, well, maybe others can as well. So, I hope you see the problem. So much is involved in how we answer this question. But there is more. Even while Jesus pronounced all foods clean, he did not do the same to the Sabbath. For instance, most of us are familiar with Jesus' very famous words, which are recorded in Mark 2, 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Well, let's just take the first part of that line. The Sabbath was made for man. What he means in that text is that the Sabbath was made for the benefit of man. In other words, the Sabbath is a benefit, a benefit that God gave the human race. Now, on this note, I have two illustrations. First, I'm still part of that generation that was a part of Canadian culture when we had mandated Sabbath laws. It was once illegal to have grocery stores open on Sunday. 
drive through the streets on Sunday, anywhere in Canada, and the streets were deserted. I remember filling the car with gas on Saturday so we would not violate Sunday. I remember when Jimmy Patterson, a very wealthy businessman in the greater Vancouver area, first opened up his grocery stores on Sunday. We, not just Christians, but many others, were scandalized. To make matters inexplicable to many was the fact that he was an, an active Pentecostal. I mean, many couldn't understand that. And I heard people saying that, that God would judge Canada for how we had become a nation that now violated Sabbath. It was a, a huge debate at one period of time. Now, my second experience is very recent. Kathy and I were recently on a four-day walking tour in Israel. We arrived in Tiberias, and on the next day, it was Saturday. That is, it was the Jewish Sabbath. I remember walking in the middle of the streets of Tiberias, streets that would normally have been plugged full of cars, and now they were utterly deserted because it was Sabbath. It reminded me of the world that I grew up in. And furthermore, I've spent time in Jerusalem, and as the sun went down on Friday night, Sabbath began. Jews from all over the city converged on the Western Wall, singing and dancing and reading scripture. The feeling in the city was a palpable feeling of joy. And I compare that to the experience of most Christians in North America. And if you think about it, I think we should all be ashamed. How many of us come to church on Sunday? Some of us run late and we leave early as we hustle off to work or to a kid's sporting event. How many of us miss our day of worship at will, either because it's inconvenient this week or for some other reason? I felt that the first time I saw Sabbath in Jerusalem, in that moment, that evangelicals looked like pagans next to this Jewish expression of reverence and devotion and fellowship and joy. And that brought me back to my Bible. What does the Bible say about Sabbath? Well, according to Exodus 31, three things emerge. One, that the Sabbath is very important to God. Two, that all work was to cease on that day. And three, that Sabbath was intended to help God's people stop and remember God, that is, to worship Him. But what does the New Testament say? Has Sabbath been abolished? I think we would do well here to consider this question very carefully. As we enter a new year, we want to begin by expressing our sincere gratitude to all those who so graciously supported Back to the Bible Canada's year-end ministry campaign. Your gift in December was critical to launching the ministry into the new year, sustaining our Bible teaching resources, and providing a springboard for new and innovative opportunities. So on behalf of Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, In Doubt, and the entire Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, Thank you. What you do is essential to the mission of this organization, and we're blessed beyond words for your generosity. As we enter a new year, please continue to pray for this ministry. And in fact, the Bible Canada is an important part of your spiritual walk with Jesus, and you believe in the mission of Bible teaching, please consider continuing your financial support or becoming a monthly partner. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. According to Acts 20, verse 7, we find that a change had taken place in the church. 
We read, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now here, instead of worshiping on the seventh day, the church worships on the first day. Now that same pattern is found in Revelation 1 verse 10. Here John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So notice that the word Sabbath has been replaced by the phrase, the Lord's day. Now that does seem significant because no observant Jew would ever refer to the Sabbath as anything but the Sabbath. But the early church talked of the Lord's day. Or notice 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2, where Paul speaks about giving an offering. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now, why do I give on the first day? And the answer is simple. That's when the ancient church worshiped. And then listen to Hebrews chapter 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so the practice of the early church, as is described in the New Testament, well, it becomes, well, it's clear. The principle of Sabbath is maintained, rest and worship is maintained, but it's now taken from its uniquely Jewish context. The early church still has 10 commands, but they don't practice the fourth command in the uniquely Jewish way. Rather, they transformed the Sabbath into the practice of the Lord's Day. In Israel today, I noticed that there are things like, well, for instance, a Shabbat elevator. Stops on every floor on the Sabbath to prevent you from pushing elevator buttons on the Sabbath because pushing an elevator button, well, that's considered work. I noticed that in some places, there's no warm food that's served on the Sabbath so that all food might be prepared the day before so that no work is performed on Sabbath. I notice that driving one's car is frowned upon. I notice that people are encouraged not to use electrical power. The more orthodox, light candles. But since lighting a candle is work, all candles are to be lit before sundown on Friday night. That's among Orthodox Jews today. And it's not unlike what existed at the time of Jesus and the practice of the Pharisees. So if I understand Paul rightly, he's saying that we no longer need to celebrate Sabbath in the Jewish way, but God still requires us a day of rest. So this is a part of the lifestyle of the gospel. We still honor the Sabbath, but we no longer are bound to the Jewish observance of the Sabbath. Instead, we honor it in terms of the Lord's day. Once a week, as is the pattern of God's people throughout all history, we cease from our labors and we worship. We don't neglect it at will. We do it in honor of the Lord. But someone's going to say to me, well, what about verse 5? One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Well, I want you to take note that the word alike, at the end of that sentence, is not actually found in the original Greek text. So let's read it again, leaving the word alike out of the sentence. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days. See the difference? This is not a contrast between the person who believes in one day of rest as opposed to the one who doesn't. No, no, no. 
This is a contrast between the person who understands the significance of only one day and the person who understands the significance of all days. And so verse 5 does not cancel out the day of rest or the Lord's day. Now to the beginning of verse 6. The one who observes the day. Notice here that Paul does not say one observes the day and another doesn't. He doesn't say that because that's not the practice of the early church. The early church kept the Lord's day, and following that lead, Christians have historically said that we should limit work on the Lord's day to deeds of necessity. In other words, all Christians cease from their labors one day a week when we worship. And all of the older commentaries, when commentating on verse 6, said precisely that. Older commentaries said not all believers will have the same rules around their day of worship, but all of us are bound to set aside one day for rest and worship, and we are not to miss. You don't come to worship one week and then miss another because, well, it might be inconvenient. That's opposed to the lifestyle of the gospel. Not all of us will, however, agree on just what are the rules around that day of rest. You know, for instance, I was recently told of an individual who will never even buy a cup of coffee on the Lord's Day. He says if he does, someone will have to work, and therefore I refuse. Now, someone will say, well, that's legalism. Well, no, it's not. According to verse 3, how dare you pass judgment on that person? See, what's of issue is that we honor the Lord's Day while all the specifics are left to local situations. Now again to verse 6. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Notice that the one who abstains is not abstaining from the Lord's day. Rather, he is abstaining from eating on the Lord's day. He's fasting on that day. So notice, we rest one day a week and glorify God. And since we have learned to esteem all days, we know that on all days we eat, we stop, and we glorify God. And that, by the way, has given birth to the practice of Christians praying before we eat. Now look at verses 7 and 8. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And that's the point about all things. Jewish and Gentile Christians might have disagreed about how to celebrate Sabbath or even on what day it was to be held. But on this they were united. In all that they do, they are to glorify God. You see, by Christ's death on the cross, he has purchased our entire lives, not just one day of the week. Verse 9 says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both dead and the living. See, I need to stop here and point out a very important truth. Verse 9 is often used to show that, that the church of Jesus Christ is made up not just of Jews and Gentiles, but it is composed of the dead and the living. Typically, we speak of the church in heaven and the church on earth, but both are one church. But that only highlights Paul's central claim. If there is but one church made up of all who have lived by faith, is it not also true about Jew and Gentile? It may be that Jew and Gentile will need extra grace 
to learn to love and appreciate their real differences. Differences felt both in the food they eat and in the way they celebrate the day of rest. But that notwithstanding, this does not destroy our inherent unity. Therefore, it is necessary for all Christians to know that which is required of us and that which is a matter of personal conscience. Sometimes we might hate to admit it, but some of the greatest causes for conflict among Christians has been over non-essentials. Think about it. How often have Christian people divided over non-essentials? Things like the style of worship, or what kind of fashion of clothing is acceptable, or card playing or dancing. There was a time when someone criticized me for not wearing a tie, which I found interesting, because in past generations, those who wore ties were considered vain and ostentatious. How quickly we forget. Now to verses 10 to 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I wonder if you find Paul's words here to be satisfying. That is, on non-essential issues, like the precise rules of how we preserve the Lord's day, are you satisfied that the judgment of God on this matter is sufficient? We will soon enough stand before Christ's bar of judgment. None of us are exempted from that. And it is for this reason that we will have to delay our judgment on non-essential issues. In the meantime, keep your heart to be a heart of love for brothers and sisters in Christ. John, there's an ongoing conflict here between those things that are tradition And those things are actually biblical and the tension we have between those two things in how we choose to live our lives. Yeah, it is amazing how often tradition uh, becomes the biblical way. Now, there are a lot of traditions that are good traditions and they are based upon solid biblical principles. But sometimes the outworking of those principles happens within a cultural context. And then when the cultural context changes, uh, suddenly... Um, we hold on to a tradition without the biblical context. And I think that's what traditionalism is. And we are well served to, to remember that, you know, over the successive generations, as long as the Christian faith has been here, uh, there have been a number of times in which our traditions have changed. We're trying not to hold on to traditions, though we want to honor what's happened in the past. We're trying to hold on to Scripture itself. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us here again tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. We're praying that 2022 would be a year that you'd experience the fellowship of the Lord like no other. We believe earnestly to do this means to commit ourselves to prayer and to the reading and study of God's Word. So we want to encourage you to make a commitment to read through the Bible this year. There are so many resources available that can assist you in achieving this goal, including Dr. John's reading plan, available at backtothebible.ca or printed in our bi-monthly Truth in Life magazine, and it's free just for your asking. Whatever resource you choose, your commitment to reading the Bible every day will allow you the opportunity to know the God of the Bible as never before. For more information about Back to the Bible Canada, 
its resources, or to support this ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.